Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Durham Book Festival. My name is Caroline Beck, and uh, today I'm delighted to be able to introduce you to two poets, Ruth Bedell and Jean Sprackland, who've written thoughtful, illuminating books on two aspects of the natural world that we might think we already know about. First, Ruth's book, which is The Urge Within Animals and Humans to Migrate, and in Jean's book, What the Sea Turns Up on a Beach After the Tide Goes Out. In just a moment, Ruth and Jean are going to be reading from their work, but before they do, I'd just like to give you a flavour of what you can find in the pages of their books. Ruth Padell is a prize-winning poet, a novelist, and a fellow of the Zoological Society of London. And she is also the great-great-granddaughter of Charles Darwin, and seems to share with him a sheer delight in the intricacies of nature. In her latest book, The Mara Crossing, she ponders on the mystery of migration through poetry and prose, from migration at a cellular level within our own bodies, to animals and birds facing danger and possible death in order to fulfil their urge to migrate, and also to our own deep-seated human need to periodically up sticks and move to a different part of the world. Jean is also a poet whose collections have been shortlisted for the prestigious Forward Prize and also the T.S. Eliot Prize. And she also has an enduring fascination in the natural world. For her book, which is a work of prose, she's done what many of us dream about doing, which she spent a year on what was then her local beach in the northwest of England, beachcombing. In her book, Strands, A Year of Discoveries on the Beach, Jean turns up some surprising revelations from buried cars, whales, messages in bottles, a china cup from a Cunard liner, to prehistoric footprints of humans and animals dating back thousands of years. Well, first of all, I'm going to ask Ruth to read from her book, The Mara Crossing, and then Jean's going to read. Then I'm going to ask a few questions, and then I'm going to throw it open to the audience. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jean. First, cell. Born in a deep-sea vent, synthesized by lightning in a reducing atmosphere, or carried here by meteorite. We are all from somewhere else. Algae, first self-replicating molecule on Earth, pulls carbon from organic substrate, performs the world's first magic photosynthesis of air to oxygen, and creates copies of herself, uncountable as starlings flocking, or the pure gold bricks Sheba sent to Solomon by mule. Cell in the air, on the rocks. Song, hoping to be heard in a heart cut open. Little blue-green, dreaming of pattern and form. Tiny horseman of apocalypse. Well, it's lovely to be here, and thank you for a very nice introduction. And lovely, I'm really looking forward to hearing Jean read. It's lovely to be reading with Jean, and up here in the north as well. Um, I've been working on this book for seven years, and it begins with cells. What I discovered, I didn't know when I started, is that cells migrate in our body. Cells migrate in order to form a fetus, and cells migrate in order to defend us against harm. The immune system, our own immune system, is based on, relies on cell migration. But of course, the first cell, however it got here, and nobody knows exactly how it got here, not whether their name is Hawkins or Dawkins, it doesn't matter. Nobody really knows. Um, the first thing it did was it started to self-replicate and spread. And that is the basic first form of migration. That's how plants migrated across the earth. It's how humans migrated out of Africa. Well, of course, one of the most important things for us, and it's been recorded by the prophets in the Old Testament, by Homer, is the migration of birds. What does the migration, what do migrants say to those who stay home? And, you know, where is a swallow's home? Where is, a, is it Africa? Is it Europe? Is it the whole trajectory of going between? So the other side of the crystal from migration is home. 
And one of the people who was really, really interested in bird migration and was the first person to prove that migrants returned to their, um, their own nest was the bird painter, John James Audubon. Now, he was a migrant himself. He was born in Haiti. He was the illegitimate son of a Creole chambermaid and um, a, a French lieutenant. And his mother died when he was three, so his father took him to France and adopted him and then sent him off to America to avoid conscription um, by Napoleon. And that was where this 18-year-old saw these birds and tied string round, round their legs and saw them come back. But this is from this moment for him, he was always obsessed with birds, and this moment for him is when he goes off to America, and he's very lonely, and he's migrated twice already in his short life. The boy from Haiti. He's 18, escaping conscription, abandoning France. On the open sea, hears Earth's rim like he's never seen it, a blurred brush line of purple on aquamarine. Sorrow, deep melancholy, my affections still with those I left behind. The world seemed a great wilderness. Haiti at three, the forest at Nantes, and now this. He can't remember leaving Saint-Domingue. Wherever he's been, he's watched birds. I felt an intimacy with them, bordering on frenzy. He reads La Fontaine and scatters ship's biscuit on deck. A flight of migrating pipits falls from the heavens like a shaft of winter sun. They came on board wearied, so hungry. The crew see a forest, a shore. He knew it. Birds unlock everything. An inlet, wide, deep, and certain. Cries of gulls above East River docks. Well, the narratives, this, this event is called Narratives. And the bird narratives, it took me three years some of their narratives are quite extraordinary, like the bar-headed geese who um, fly over the Himalayas. I'm sure a lot of you know this or may have seen videos of them. They're very handsome birds. Um, and they nest in sort of Mongolia, Kyrgyzstan. And then they fly south over, over 33,000 feet, higher than 33,000 feet, over Everest. How do they do it? Because when a bird is flying, it needs about three times the amount of oxygen that it needs just pecking about on the ground. And when you're up there, there's about a quarter of the amount of oxygen available on the ground anyway. Well, they have very special um, hemoglobin, which is specially adapted to absorb oxygen really fast. And the capillaries go deeper into the muscle, so this hemoglobin gets deep inside. Well, how do they get like that? Because other geese aren't like that. They got like that. It doesn't argue for intelligence, but it, they got like that because they were flying that route before the Himalayas rose. I mean, that's just an extraordinary thing. You know, they, they, they didn't think, see a mountain ahead of them and think, oh, all right, I'll go another way. They just thought, okay, I'll adapt my hemoglobin, flap, 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 and off they go. Um, and that's their story. Um, it's an extraordinary one. It, it's cruel, but a lot of them don't make it but they get on. But this is the marine, the largest migration on Earth, on the planet Earth, happens in the sea, and it happens every night and morning, and it's vertical. And it's the jellyfish and all sorts of things rising to feed on plankton up at the surface of the sea, and more and more life forms follow them. So there's this huge procession of things that come up to the surface of the sea and then down again in the morning. And in this, it's helpful to know in this poem that my, my father was a psychoanalyst because I think, in a way, I'm equating the unseen bottom of the sea with the unconscious. Nocturne. Sundown. I imagine my father, ten years dead, examining the lilied deep. A whole marine community on the move while a planet sleeps. 
zooplankton rise to graze on surface phytoplankton, that smudge of green you hardly see, but it's been busy all day processing the energy of sun, followed by a host of arrow worms, sea butterflies, comb jellies, larvae. Other tenants of the dark rise with them, protozoa, copepods and krill, a ragtag army preyed on by larger predators still, the bioluminescence brigade, lanternfish glowing cold catoptromantic rays, 300 species of dense packed cephalopods, and hatchetfish following their own fixed upward gaze. Now he sees torpedoes through the murk, dolphin shapes, sharks, egopsida squid with hooks on the end of their tentacles, and giant of the deep, the slow, filter-feeding, 18-foot megamouth. Shadows fighting the task of life in the underdark alone. But leading this spout of moon milk are the jellyfish. You think of them, don't you, as flotsam, mammary and malign, drifting through waves which toss them like mermaids on the beach. But tonight, they are the stars, flowering to surface in translucent violet rose, a million moons of tangled crystal, tilted curlicues of lace, a ghost flotilla escaping when a manhole cover is removed, parachutes blowing the wrong way, lenticular galaxies, floaters in the retina, translucent udders with a whiplash trail of lambent fern. This is the full mooch skyward, bubbles of the soul, tendrils of old man's beard peeling off from the unconscious in pulp and tinsel dribbles, the book of the sea shredding as it unfolds, the whole procession white as aluminium. This suits my dad. He is, after all, a ghost. Or white as the sun when it slips behind a cloud. A convoy of wraith buskers creeping from the tube like rebellions of the night. All hail, O oh jellyfish, you ripple fringe of poisoned toga, blip from the cauldron of nightmare, the unnamed that is always there under the surface and what we were always afraid of. We didn't know for sure, but we suspected. Then, at first light, the delicate descent begins to a bed we only imagine, the floor we never see, all heaving crevices and bubbled weed. The world is not all black and all white. You are never safe. Well, Jean's going to read prose, um, and I'm going to read a little bit of prose now. Um, and this is about the Mara crossing itself. I mean, I'm sure you have seen it on television. Some of you may have been there. This is the river at the end of the northwards trek of three months that the wildebeest, zebra, and gazelles go on from the Serengeti up to the um, sweet grass, the other side of the Masai Mara. And in that river, they're very, very tired when they get there, especially the young ones. And in that river are the largest and hungriest crocodiles in Africa, just waiting for them. And it doesn't happen all at once. It isn't one big, long column. There are lots of columns. And this was one scene that I watched. There were no zebra that day. Zebra, a stronger and more intelligent wildebeest, often follow their lead. Zebras cross as they migrate in family groups. A blow from a zebra hoof could disable a jaw. So experienced crocodiles wait for the wildebeest and just take the odd timid mare or foal which hangs back and gets isolated. The gazelles come last, but they are smaller, they have to swim. Only zebras are brainy enough to calculate entrance and exit from the river. These gazelles had picked a place where they could not possibly scramble out. 
The male took his first step into the shallows. He bounced in on impossibly thin, cottony legs, stopped and looked back, then gazed at the far side, a wall he could never conceivably climb. He was knee-deep. You could almost see a magnet on the other side, pulling. From higher up, we could see the enormous crocodile drifting slowly towards him. Water refraction must have made it invisible to the gazelle. He wheeled round. The does flitted and flinched. Then the three ended up staring at the river again. Suddenly, he started swimming. He was a clockwork gazelle doing a splashy butterfly. He was little and had chosen the deepest place to cross. The females watched, their faces filled with him, tiny hooves standing in the choppy waves he made, their reflections trembling beside the shore they were driven to leave. Then there was a slash of brown lightning, a split-second open joy, and their boy was gone. They looked at water gleam resettling on the surface. They'd watched him go, and now he wasn't there. Well, Mara, in Latin, need, means bitter. In North European folklore, Mara is a nightmare demon of horror and death. Buddhist Mara is a demon of illusion. Once the Vedic demon of drought, he now spreads terror through deception, threatening, to threatening us by obscuring truth. He tempted the Buddha, who touched the earth and realized enlightenment. Then Mara disappeared. The Proto-Indo-European root, mare, to die, and Sanskrit, Mara, obstacle or death, stand behind these Maras. By a complete phonetic accident, they resemble the Maasai name for the river at the end of, of Wildebeest's journey. Since I watched what happened at that river, Mara has come to me to represent bitter losses and struggle and obstacles, but also the triumph of survival, like the wildebeest, the successful migrants cross over to create new life. Well, I'll finish with a poem which elides human migration and animal migration. I mean, the main point of it is new life, survival. But of course, there are a thousand ways of animals to do it and a thousand, even more thousands of ways that human beings do it. Time to fly. You go because you heard a cuckoo call. You go because you met someone. You made a vow. There are no more grasshoppers. You go because the cold is coming. Spring is coming. Soldiers are coming. Plague, flood, an ice age, a new religion, a new idea. You go because the world rotates. You go because the world is changing and you've lost the key. You go because you have the kingdom of heaven in your heart and the kingdom of hell has taken over someone else's heart. You go because you have magnetite in your brain, thorax, tips of your teeth, because the grass is green over the hill and there'll be gold, or more likely bauxite, inside the hill. You go because your mother is dying and only you can bring her the apples of the Hesperides. You go because you need work. You go because the astrologers say so. The sea is calling. Your best friend bought a motorbike in America last year. You go because the streets are paved with gold. And besides, your father went when he was your age. You go because you have 17 children and the Lord will provide. Because your 16 brothers have parceled up the land and there's none left for you. You go because the waters are rising, an ice sheet is melting, the rivers are dry, there are no more fish in the sea. You go because God has given you a sign. You had a dream. The potatoes are blighted. Because it is too hot, too cold. You are on a quest for knowledge and knowledge is always beyond. You go because it's destiny, because Pharaoh won't let you light candles on Friday at sundown, because you're looking for the meaning of life, a tall tree to nest in, an enchanted lake. You go because travel is holy, 
because your body is wired to go. You'd have a quite different body and different brain if you were the sort of bird that stayed. You go because you can't pay the rent. Creditors lie in wait for your children after school. You go because Pharaoh has hogged the oil, electricity, and paraffin, so all you have on your table are candles when you can get them. You go because you've got nothing left to hope for. Because there's everything to hope for and all life is risk. You go because someone put the evil eye on you and barometric pressure is dropping. You go because you can't cope with your gift. Other people can't cope with your gift because you have no gift and the barbarians after you. You go because the barbarians are gone. Herod has turned off the internet and mobile phones. The modem is useless and the eagles are coming. You go because the eagles have died off with the vultures and the ancestors are angry. There's no one to clean the bones. You go in peace. You go in war. Someone has offered you a job. You go because the dog is going, too. You go because the Grand Vizier sent paramilitaries to your house last night. You have to go quick and leave the dog behind. You go because you've eaten the dog and that's it. There's nothing else. You go because you've given up and might as well. Because your love is dead. Because she laughed at you. Because she's coming with you. It will be a big adventure and we'll live happily ever after. You go in hope, in haste, in faith, in high spirits, deep sorrow, deep snow, deep shit, and without question. You pause halfway to stoke up on omega-3 and horseshoe crabs. You go for phosphorus, myrtle berries, salt. You go for oil and pepper. It was your father's dying wish. You go from pole to pole. You go because you can. You mate and sleep on the wing. You go because you need a place to shed your skin in safety. You go with a thousand questions, but you are growing up, growing old, moving on. Say goodbye to the might-have-beens. You can't step into the same river twice. You go because hope, need, and escape are names for the same God. You go because life is sweet, life is cheap, life is flux, and you can't take it with you. You go because you're alive, because you're dying, maybe dead already. You go because you must. Thank you. Well, it's wonderful to be here in Durham, first time I've been to Durham and reading in this dramatic and beautiful space. And uh, wonderful to hear Ruth reading from her book, which I think is a lovely book, and which I think, I think there are um, certain things that our two books have in common. I was thinking as she was reading then that in, in my book too, there is this um, sense of movement. The things in the book have made great journeys often, and often overlapping journeys, and have kind of, their paths have crossed as they've traveled. But this book, Strands, takes place, or at least takes its beginnings from one single place, one beach, one stretch of coast, which is an area where I lived for, for 20 years, not the area I grew up in. I grew up in uh, a Midlands town called Burton-on-Trent, about as far away from the sea as it's possible to get in this country, and never quite got over the excitement of moving to live close to the sea. And the, the stretch of coast I'm talking about is um, about half an hour's drive north of Liverpool. Uh, so you've got Liverpool to the south and Blackpool to the north. This is not a kind of unspoilt or particularly picturesque kind of coast but it has its own wild beauty. And as I walked there over the course of those years, I became more and more, my relationship with that place grew deeper and more and more um, meaningful to me and began to come into the poems that I was writing at the time. 
And some of the things that I found on the beach, mostly washed up by the tide, began to find their way into those poems as well. And there came a point where I thought, this is all very well, but actually I want to write something a bit more discursive, where I have more space to actually investigate these things, research them, find out about them, what they are, where they come from, and what it might mean to find them lying here. So that's how this, this book came about, my first foray into prose nonfiction. And the book represents one year of walking on the beach, because as anyone who's ever walked on a beach knows, they change with the seasons, um, often quite dramatically. And the sorts of things that you find there will depend on the, on the time of year as well. So I track this one year, which is in fact the last year living there, and I knew that I was going to be moving on and, and wanted to record that final year on the beach. And there's a great range of things represented here. So you've heard a few of them mentioned already. Um, and, and some of them are really extraordinary things that I wouldn't have expected to find. And others more predictable, perhaps, the kind of things we all know we might turn up on a beach. But I very much wanted to pay the same kind of quality of attention to all these things, whether they were expected or unexpected. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from, um, from a chapter, which is about something that is not at all unusual to find on a beach, really. They're, they're objects that I probably saw almost every time I visited this beach. And we usually know them as mermaids' purses. The origin of the word purse is in the Greek word bursa, meaning hide or leather. And the little black parcels, which are often to be found in the strand line, look very much like black leather, scuffed or glossy. These are mermaids' purses, the egg cases of dogfish, ray and skate. A closer look reveals that they're not all the same. Some are almost square, with a long curved spike at each corner. These belong to ray and skate. Others are more oblong in shape, with fine curled tendrils. These are the purses of dogfish. It's not at all unusual to find both types together on the beach, and sometimes there are scores of them, cast like small cryptic gifts all along the, all along the strand line. The folk name, Mermaid's Purse, marks these out both as enchanted objects and as things of childhood. My own children used to love to collect them. And when she was six, my daughter, always fascinated by the names of things, took one home and insisted on using it as a purse for small coins. But enchantment has its darker side. An alternative name is Devil's Purse. And on a February afternoon, with the sky turning navy blue and a cold wind cutting in from the sea, it's not difficult to recast them as sinister objects. Either way, they have something of the fairy tale about them, these jet black parcels, sealed and mysterious, with their frills and curlicues. The word dogfish is used to describe a number of species of small shark which inhabit northern European oceans. There are over 400 species of shark in the world, raising in, ranging in size from 15 centimetres to over six metres long. Many species give birth to live young, but of those which lay eggs, each has its unique purse or egg capsule, some fantastic in appearance. Most have either the points or curled strings I've observed on the ones I've found, but the capsule of the horn shark is corkscrew-shaped. The female screws or wedges it into a suitable crevice in the rock to keep it out in place and out of the way of predators for the six to ten months it takes to hatch. In photographs, it's an alien-looking object, more like a small but vital part a mechanic might pull out of the back of a washing machine and shake his head over. Sorry, love, your capsule's gone. Here on my local beach, I've only ever found two varieties, square and oblong, although these basic shapes contain a much richer variety. 
The Shark Trust provides an identification guide explaining how to tell species apart by soaking and measuring, comparing the length of the distal and proximal horn, examining the edges for the presence or absence of a lateral keel. The guide covers the whole Elasma branch family, including skates and rays as well as sharks. I would very much like to find the common skate purse, which is about the size of an A5 notebook and covered with fibrous, pale golden bark that peels off to reveal the shiny black surface underneath. But sadly, common skate is now a misnomer. It appears on the critically endangered list, and such a find is unlikely. I have more of a chance with the starry skate, whose purse has a special washboard texture on one side to help it stick to the seabed. Or the cuckoo ray, very small and neat, with curved horns as long as the capsule itself. The ones I find are mostly desiccated, blackened and hardened by their time out of water. Sometimes, though, you can find one freshly cast, and this will look quite different, soft in texture, olive brown in colour, translucent. The chances are it's empty, its occupant already swum free. But it's just possible, especially after stormy weather, to find one unhatched. Pick it up and hold it to the light, and you'll see the developing embryo inside. If you're very lucky, gestation will be complete, and you'll see a tiny baby skate or shark, almost ready to hatch. If you just happen to come along at the right time, you can even assist at the birth. A fish keeper called Jim Hall has been doing this for 20 years. He searches for freshly cast egg capsules of the lesser spotted dogfish on the beaches of South Wales and takes them home to his aquarium. There he watches until the embryo is fully developed. At the right moment, he pinches the purse gently. If the hatchling struggles to break free, he snips the purse open. And there it is, a newborn sharklet just a few centimetres long. Saving individual fish is one thing, but it would require an unprecedented global rescue effort to stop whole species from catastrophe. Fishing on an industrial scale is emptying our oceans, and sharks are especially vulnerable. Of over 400 known species, 201 are endangered, according to the Red List published by the World Conservation Union. The red-tailed black shark is now extinct in the wild. The Dagonose shark, Harrison's deep-sea dogfish, the Pondicherry shark and the sawback angel shark are amongst those critically endangered. Sliding towards oblivion are the dusky shark, the night shark, the big-eye thresher shark, the circle-blotch pygmy swell shark, the saddled carpet shark, the bristled lantern shark, the happy eddy, the brown shy shark, the sickle fin weasel shark, the snaggletooth shark, the Papuan epaulette shark, the sharp nosed seven gill shark, the pale ghost shark, the South China cookie cutter shark, the harlequin shark minnow, the sweet William, the white spotted gummy shark, the tawny nurse shark, the spotted wobbegong, the dwarf ornate wobbegong, the slender weasel shark, the pyjama shark, the crocodile shark, the slender weasel shark, the spade nose shark, the frog shark, the little sleeper shark, the scalloped bonnet head. The naming of species is a celebratory act, a moment of recognition, of valuing. No wonder these names are so elegant, funny and particular. Each marks a spike of optimism when the world became to humanize a richer and more contrapuntal place. And names matter. Even if it wasn't an endangered species, you might hesitate to order spotted wobbegong in a restaurant. But how about mermaids' purses themselves? Is it possible to imagine eating them? A mid-19th century natural history writer, the Reverend J.G. Wood, suggests it just might be. He writes about skate egg cases, 
or skate barrows, as the local fishermen call them, on account of their resemblance to hand barrows. I was once talking about these eggs to some fishermen who told me that in the spring they often found these eggs before the young were hatched and were accustomed to boil and eat them just as hen's eggs are eaten. Whether to believe them or not, I could not make up my mind, for fishermen are wonderfully loose in their details. However, as they gave me the information, I present it to the reader and leave it to his own discretion to judge, or happily to his own energy to prove or disprove by actual experiment. Thanks, Rev. I think I'll pass. But still, I'll always be pleased to find a mermaid's purse for its reminder of childhood, its hint of magic, its curious beauty, and also as a sign of hope for the future. Each discarded purse represents a new life. The ingenious design means that eggs, so vital but so fragile, are protected by their unique packaging, equipped either with elastic laces to attach it to seaweed, or with a specially roughened surface like Velcro to help it stay put until the moment of ripeness. It's like a message in a bottle. The message is the DNA, which will make the next generation. It's launched into the swift currents in its own disposable boat, light but tough, sewn shut against dangers, perfectly engineered for survival. So that's one kind of thing that I write about in the book, natural things which are always there, which are brought in on the tide and left on the beach. Things like seaweed and lugworms and all sorts of things, some, some prettier than others, but all interesting in their own way. And this, writing this book allowed me the space to follow their stories and to, to sort of make links, which often took me a very long way from my starting point and from that particular beach. So finding bits of seaweed on this beach, which is not at all a seaweed beach. There are no rocks there, so there's nothing for seaweed to actually grow on. But you do find little, small amounts of it cast on the sand. And investigating seaweed took me to South Wales to, to taste lava bread. I'm sure some of you know about lava bread and have probably um, tasted it or even been eating it all your lives. But I, I went along to try this uh, South Wales delicacy, which is a kind, not a bread at all, of course, but a kind of pudding of boiled seaweed. And so there was the space here to go and, and, and do these things and find out. And it is very much a book about finding out as I go along. So, uh, you know, I am a poet and I came to this project um, without perhaps the deep scientific knowledge that others might have, have brought to the project. And so it became, for me, a book about finding things out. As well as these natural objects, there are also, of course, many man-made things to be found on a beach. It's impossible, in fact, to write about walking on the beach without talking about plastic, because beaches are, I'm afraid, all littered with plastic now, no matter where they are in the world. And I suppose it can look altered by its time in the sea, one of the things that I think the book is about is about change, sea change, in fact, to use that expression. So something which has gone into the water and spent some time there and then been cast on the beach is often softened. Its shape has changed, its colours changed. And sometimes things which are made of plastic look at first glance like natural things. You can mistake them for jellyfish or some other kind of sea creature. And then there are also things which are put into the water deliberately. Or at least there's one thing which is put into the water deliberately, which I alluded to in that last little reading. And that's the message in a bottle. And perhaps this was one of the more um, unexpected, well, it was both expected and unexpected, this discovery, in that, as I say at the beginning of this um, 
this little excerpt, I had always wanted to find a message in a bottle. Who wouldn't? We would all want to find one, but had begun to give up on the likelihood of finding one. So I'm just going to read the, just the opening little bit from this chapter, which is entitled SOS to the World. There can't be a beachcomber in the land who hasn't poked about speculatively in the strand line, hoping to find a message in a bottle. They're beguiling objects. They speak to us of a deep human paradox, our need to be alone and our need to connect with others. How are we ever to reconcile these two contradictory desires? Through the messy, complicated business of conversation, the tired, tired old bureaucratic means of letter or email, that would take work. But the random find of a message in a bottle is a fresh and thrilling idea. A total stranger reaching out and finding us. This could be the chance in a million which changes everything. A world in which there are messages in bottles is a world still trailing, in spite of everything, a few tattered rags of romance. When I was nine or ten, my friend Julie and I had a dead letterbox. It was a hole in a tree, in a field where we were not supposed to go. There was a warning sign nailed on the gate, and the farmer was said to be in the habit of pointing his shotgun at trespassers. Furthermore, to get to the tree, you had to pass a haunted barn, a dilapidated structure made of corrugated iron. I used to hold my breath as I walked past it, a tried and tested method of warding off bad magic. It was worth it for the thrill of receiving a letter. I still recall vividly the sensation of reaching up into the scratchy hole in the bark, scrabbling around blindly with my fingertips, touching moss and old leaves and owl pellets, and finding a wad of damp paper. Our letters were always neatly sealed inside envelopes handmade out of pages torn surreptitiously from school exercise books, though this in itself was a risky activity, since our teacher, Mr. Nifton, was meticulous in checking our books and had a kind of genius for spotting the telltale threads of a torn-out page still attached to the staples. From an adult perspective, it looks like a whole lot of unnecessary effort. We could easily have passed each other letters at school or walked around and put them through each other's doors. What was so secret, anyway, that it had to be written and sealed rather than said out loud in the playground? I have no idea. I remember nothing about the content, only the method of delivery. Climbing that gate, skirting the field, and retrieving the letter, these made for some of the most intoxicating moments of my childhood. And how much more exciting it would be to receive a letter posted in the mother of all dead letterboxes, the sea. On the day I find my first ever message in a bottle, I also find my second. In fact, I find them within 10 minutes of each other. They're lying near the high tide line, 50 yards apart. I've been kicking through the seaweed and driftwood, turning up an especially diverse rubble of objects, including a chimney pot, a plastic can marked with a skull and crossbones, a blue and yellow sign saying, warning, construction site, keep out, a one-legged teddy bear, and a whole cabbage. I've also been looking at bottles. There's so many and so various, mostly whole, but here's the neck of one, snapped so cleanly it's hardly sharp at all, with threads of seaweed spilling out. I'm thinking how exciting it would be to find a message inside one of these bottles. And then I do. I find one. It's unmistakable. The bottle is plastic rather than the more traditional glass, but I can see the roll of white paper inside. It's a moment in which I question my own sanity. I thought of something, and it materialized. Am I turning into one of those people who go on about the power of visualization? Am I henceforth, like Noel Edmonds, a believer in cosmic ordering? Dismissing these anxieties, I pick up the bottle and try to unscrew the cap, 
but it seems to be super glued shut. I'll have to take it home and break into it there. Fifty yards further on, with the exciting bottle stashed in my rucksack, I find the second. And actually, my high spirits sink a little. The bottles are superficially different, but I can see straight away that the contents are identical. A roll of white lined paper tied neatly with black thread. Even so, I stash the second and head for home, where I stand the two bottles on the kitchen table and sit staring at them for a long time. I think about what might be inside. I ask myself what I would like it to be. I brace myself for disappointment in case the paper is blank, for instance. Then I open them. The glue is so solidly applied, I resort to sawing them open with a bread knife. A little scroll of paper falls out of each. When I undo them and smooth them flat, the messages are identical. Each is written on two sheets of lined paper from a reporter's notebook. The notebook must have had its spiral binding removed because the perforations along the top of each sheet are unbroken and intact. Even Mr. Nifton would have been outfoxed. So I go on to open these bottles and read the messages, which in fact um, are unreadable. Um, they are themselves mysterious and remain mysterious, despite my best efforts to understand them. They're a kind of list um, which hints at um, a conspiracy theory. And the odd thing which I go on to expand on in the book is that I then discovered that I was not the only person to have found this message in a bottle. So it's very strange in the age of um, email spam to think that it might be possible to create spam out of something as <laughs> traditional as a message in a bottle. Thank you for listening. Um, uh, ask you if you want to ask Ruth and Jean any questions. I just wanted to ask you a couple of things about your books. Both of you have mentioned that um, the th two common themes are, are change and, and also I detect an anxiety about change. For you, Jean, it's because you were just about to leave and you were about to go and live in London. And for you, Ruth, there's, there's a sort of tantalising mentions of your daughter who is going and coming back again. And because she's going for quite a long time, uh, you're actually going to have to downsize and leave your, as you say in the book, beloved house and garden. So you too are going to have to migrate. And I wondered whether it was that anxiety that actually almost prompted you to, to look at these aspects of change. I wonder if it's anxiety or if it's just becoming more alert to the fact that we're all in a process of change all the time. I mean, yes, you know, the, it, moving house is, a, is an anxious, anxious time. But also you tune in to the fact that everybody's doing it. Seven billion people are on the move at the moment, migrating. I mean, you know, I felt part of, I felt part of that, I think. I don't know about mm. you, Jean. Yes, I mean, I, I'm not sure about anxiety either, but, but a very acute awareness that I was going to be leaving a place that had come to be a very rich part of my interior life, actually, as well as just um, being an external landscape. I'd sort of taken it inside myself. And um, so I was acutely aware that there was going to be a loss there. And I had that instinct that I think we often have to, to sort of really look, you know, to really pay attention when it's almost too late. Um, you go on for a long time not really looking and letting things kind of slide over you or slide past you, but, but that sense that you've almost left it too late. And I wanted to look and I wanted to record and sort of, in a way, do, do that place the honour of, of, of really noticing what it was like, I suppose. Ruth, do you think because we, in this country, live on a sort of unseen migratory border, uh, and we often see, you know, we look up in the sky and we see bo uh, birds moving uh, over us all the time, and we, we love the swallows and the swifts and the cuckoos because they announce summer, um, but actually, I've just been walking the fields and the red wings are back and, you know, we're shivering because of autumn. Do you think we're more uh, acutely aware of migration than perhaps, you know, other peoples in the world? 
No, I mean, I, I was in Bhutan when they were waiting for the cranes to come. Um, and they, that's the beginning of autumn. Um, so that they, and there's a, that's the sort of national dance, is the crane dance. And I, I think that wh whoever lives in the countryside is much more aware of, of migration than, than, you know, toads, for instance. I mean, migrations vary so much, and, and you know, the, the Arctic turn flies from pole to pole, but a toad might, might be an even more dangerous journey from, from a, a, here to the next pond, and it might be over a motorway. Um, so t migrations vary, and, but if you're alert to them, um, that's the that's the issue. I mean, I suppose one of the things that the books have in common is, is alertness to the world that is not ourselves, mm -hmm. as well as and how we fit into it, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Jean, when you were walking along the beach, uh, when you were beach combing, um, you you discovered some extraordinary things. Were you amazed at the diversities of the stories that you uncovered by these things that the tide brought in every mm -hmm. day? After all, it was a beach that you knew very well. Yes, yes, it never, it never stopped delivering surprises, that's, that's true. And I think probably the sort of absolute high point of surprise was finding this china teacup on the beach, on a beach which was otherwise flat and empty because there'd been a very fierce high tide which had sort of pulled the sand absolutely flat and smooth. And just this teacup delivered up to me, I felt, <laughs> as I walked towards it, which turned out to be a, a piece of Cunard china. It had come off a, a Cunard liner. And, of course, you know, there are people, experts, who can read the patterns on this china. You know, it doesn't matter how obscure something is. There are experts in, this, in that field, aren't there? And, and it was possible to trace this cup back to either the Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mary, which means that it had been somewhere in the sea or perhaps buried under the sand for 60 years, I should think, which seemed, um, which was an extraordinary moment of surprise, really, because I think we get used to the idea, which is also true, that the sea is a very destructive force and that a lot of what turns up is broken and mangled and changed by its time in the sea. And then here's this, here's this cup. So I suppose if I'd been staying there and walked there for another 10 years, you know, I would have just gone on finding more and more extraordinary things. And, and this is something that could have obsessed me for my whole life. But uh, in a way, it's quite good to, to um, draw a line under that and move on and, and start to think about something else. Do you miss it? I miss it hugely. But I knew I would miss it. Somehow... Loss is not the same if you, if you anticipate it and prepare yourself for it. And actually, writing the book was a very big part of that preparation. You know, thinking, I am going to lose this place. I'm, I could go back and visit, but that wouldn't be the same. It won't be my beach anymore. And these things won't feel so connected with me. So, um, in a sense, it was a sort of farewell to that place and to that part of my life, you know, where, where I had been... Um, married and raised a family, and it was it was sort of a goodbye to that whole that whole long chapter of my life. I think. Yes, I think that's what I I felt too. And because all change entails loss, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's some. Um, but but if you know you're going to do it, and you're packing up the packing up the boxes and getting bus boxes from Tesco to put the you know and taking books to Oxfam and things, you are starting to mourn. You're mourning in advance, and so in a way, perhaps your your book is a sort of morning, as well as it's a saying goodbye, as you say. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I wanted to ask you both, um, although your book is prose and, and your book, Ruth, is a mixture of poetry and prose, I mean, poetry is often about bringing something up from the depths, interrogating it and looking at it afresh in the light. Um, and it seems to me that both your books share this same quality of something, as I mentioned in the uh, introduction, something we think we know about. We think we know about beachcombing, we think we know about migration. Actually, I learned a huge amount from both these books. And it seemed to me that they were like the best kind of poetry. Good. <laughs> <laughs> We're glad. That's a very nice thing. But yeah. what yeah. I was going to say was, did you find... Uh, particularly Eugene, in writing in prose, that you, you had more room to kind of really explore this. Mm. I mean, it's, it's curious. It, it was my first... You know, Ruth is, is a much more experienced 
prose writer. But for me, it was my first move into this kind of writing. And I found it sort of maddeningly difficult for a very long time. Um, as a poet, I think one of the habits you develop as a poet, of course, is to write these, these very small things. You know, it's all about concision. Um, and so expanding into these larger spaces that I had um, secured for myself for the writing of this book was, was very difficult. Um, but, I, but I gradually relaxed and let myself, you know, let myself a bit looser in the writing, I suppose, to, to explore things. And, and that's the joy of it, that it gave me space to talk about these, not only the place and the objects, but to, to sort of riff away from them in, about other things that they, other connections that they suggested to me, which I found by researching them. So I might set out to, for instance, I found a, li a little creature on a beach, a friend and I found it, called a sea mouse. And many of you might know about the sea mouse, but I had never heard of it. And it's a, a, a really extraordinary little sort of iridescent, furry worm, actually. But it doesn't look like a worm at first glance. It looks like a mammal, a tiny mammal. So it's a very strange and unexpected thing for me to find. And so in researching what this was, where it had come from, where it lives, and why it's here on my beach, I then discovered that scientists were using it to develop a new kind of fibre-optic cable because it is actually better at doing the job than the fibre-optic cables that we've been laying on the ocean floor for the last 20 years or whatever. So, you know, it, the space of a, of a book like this allows you to find those stories and, and follow them wherever they might go, really. Yeah, when, I mean, I mean it, my book is in a strange shape because it's partly prose and it's partly poems. And it's actually a very old shape. It was called the prosimetrum, and it goes back to the sort of 7th century um, AD. Boethius's book on consolation was a mixture of prose and philosophy. And Dante's book, um, La Vita Nuova, The New Life, which he wrote before he wrote his sort of great poems, he wrote a sequence of poems about Beatrice, um, from first seeing her as a child and then after her death. And then he wrote about the poems. Mm. And I thought that's a really interesting thing because I wanted to approach this big um, question of migration. And I was doing lots of research, but it was... I needed to put more space so that the reader could breathe and breathe with me and know the things um, before they read the next poems. And I think... You know, it was. It, I had to follow Dante in the end because I didn't know what else to do. It was. It was. I think perhaps what we're both talking about is about sharing. It's about how you share knowledge that you've acquired that you want to pattern into some sort of story, um, and you want to do it for and with the reader. Mm. Now, I think we've just got time for one or two questions. If anybody would like to ask Ruth or Jean a question, there's. Someone over there. I think, have we got a roving mic? Yeah. If you just wait until the mic gets to you. And they've just passed it down here. Okay. Sorry, we've just got time for one, that's all. <laughs> um, I saw that Jean did a reading at a prison yesterday. And um, based on this, I was wondering how the perceptions and the reactions <coughs> to your readings differ from place to place. Mm. Yes, I, I was lucky enough to have the chance to go into Low Newton Prison yesterday and, and read... Actually, I did read a little bit from this book, but I was mostly reading poems yesterday. Um, it, was, it was a great experience because, because, I think, or partly because, uh, that group of women who, who were the audience yesterday had been reading some of my poems. They, they have a, a literature worker who works with them in the in the library there, and had prepared the ground by reading and talking about some of my poems. So they, they, they were already kind of tuned in. And in a way, I think that that is part of what can make a difference to a reading. Um, you know, so uh, it, it, at its sort of greatest extreme, you might be kind of oddly parachuted into a place, perhaps a school, um, but it, it might not be a school, where, where the audience knows nothing about you and nothing about your work, and then you've got a mountain to climb, in a way, 
to sort of um, to, to make that that contact, to make that communication, to throw your voice across to them and, and have it heard in, in what can be a very short space of time. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, certainly at events like this, you know, you get an audience who are extraordinarily well-read and, um, and knowledgeable about, about books. Um, so that's a very comfortable experience in, in contrast. But there's also the sense that an audience, I mean, you've, you've all become an audience. Um, you, you know, you, you might not have known each other before, but you walked into this room and you've had the experience we've all had this last hour. And you're all, you become an audience um, together. And I think it's very, very interesting. I think the whole rise of poetry festivals and literary festivals in the last 10 years is very interesting because um, it means that people want to experience literature and reading and thoughts about reading together. It, they don't want to sit looking at the television by themselves or reading a book by themselves only. They want to go and do it with other people. And I think that's a, a really, I think that's one of the most hopeful things about our peculiar society at the moment. <laughs> well, thank you very much for visiting our, uh, our literature <laughs> festival. Thank you. And on behalf of the audience, Ruth and Jean, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.